We are continuing on this morning in our sermon series on the first part of Revelation. We're looking at the seven letters that Christ has written to the seven of the churches in Asia. Um, Strongly encourage you to follow along. This is Revelation chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 18. And today we're looking at the letter um, from Jesus to the church in Thyatira. The church in Thyatira. Now we've already looked at letters to churches in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. And our letter today to this church is, is, is the letter written to the smallest church of the group. The most inconsequential probably. The one with the um, least influence in the world and the society and the Greco-Roman culture it was in. And yet, this smallest church gets the longest letter. Not sure why that is or if that's even incredibly significant, but it is interesting to think about that. And this letter actually opens with some great encouragement. You see it there in verse 19. Uh, Jesus writes, he says, I know your works, your love and your faithful service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is a church that while it was small and while it was unremarkable compared to the other six, this is a church that is growing in their faithfulness and love of Jesus. A quiet and sustained growth in their love of Christ. Their latter works, it says, exceed their first. It's an interesting contrast to Ephesus, right? The, the first letter we looked at in Ephesus, they were, um, they were taken to task for abandoning their first love. They were getting away from Jesus, the way from the one that they first fell in love with. And here we have in Thyatira, a church that is growing in their love of Christ. And this love of Jesus is evidenced where? In their works. It's evidence in their increasingly faithful deeds, their latter works, the ways they were serving Jesus now at the time of this letter exceeded the ways they were serving Jesus at the beginning. They have grown from immature baby Christians into mature, faithful followers of Christ. So let there be no doubt, this is a church that is growing in their discipleship and growing in their love of Jesus. At the same time, it is not a church that is without blemish. Like many of the other churches that receive these letters, Jesus does have something against the church in Thyatira. It's right there in verse 20, right? I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality And to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now what's going on here? Well, it's most likely that Jezebel is not actually the name of this woman. But a symbolic name for a woman who is claiming to be a prophet of God. And it was given to her because of what she represents. A symbolic name, Jezebel. Now you might remember Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament. She was... The queen of King Ahab and the kings in Israel's day, you remember, were supposed to be in many ways spiritual leaders to the people. She was the queen of King Ahab. And she, instead of, along with her king, leading Israel into worship of God, she led them into idolatrous worship of the pagan god Baal. Jezebel also arranged for the murder of the prophets of God. 
And she even had a private landowner, Naboth. She had him executed because the king would not, because he would not sell his vineyard to the king. Jezebel was a false prophet in many ways because she was leading people away from God. And so for someone in Thyatira to be referred to as Jezebel, she must have been associated or considered to be a false prophet. She's someone claiming to speak for God things that are not true. In Thyatira, these truths included eating food, sacrificed to idols, and sexual immorality. Now what's fascinating is that those two things, right, food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, these were two of the stipulations put on the Gentile church way back in Acts 15. Do y'all remember this? Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's been out, a missionary to the Gentiles, preaching the gospel to folks who were not Jewish. And they were receiving Jesus. And they were receiving the Holy Spirit, and they were coming to faith. And the question arose, do they need to become Jews? Do they need to come under the law? Do they need to accept the covenant of circumcision? Or is faith in Jesus enough? And so Paul brings this to the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And he says, this is what we've seen. And they pray and they think and they talk. And the apostles and leaders in, in Jerusalem say, Paul, you're right. There's no need for a Gentile believer in Jesus Christ who has received the Holy Spirit to come under the burden of the law. Faith in Jesus is enough. And so they write a letter commending that, but they do say, they, they add a stipulation, they say, please refrain from doing a couple of things, two of which were eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Why? Because in a Greco-Roman culture, these two things led you away from God into worshiping the idols of the age and the day, into worshiping the Roman and Greek gods and goddesses, into worshiping the emperor. These things led you away from Christ and right into the false gods of the day. And here in Thyatira, we have Jezebel claiming God's authority as a prophetess, seducing the Christians there to be not only sinful but idolatrous, to worship false gods. Now clearly in our passage, Jezebel and her followers are coming under judgment, right? She's had her chance to repent. She refused. Her judgment is coming. Her followers, the Scripture says, they might have another chance, but their judgment is is coming too if they don't turn back to Christ. But what we must note is that Jesus' judgment is not reserved only for Jezebel and her followers. What does he have against the church in Thyatira? What is it? Look at it again. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Not that you participate with her. Not that you honor her, not that you put her in leadership positions in your church, but that you tolerate her presence with you. That you tolerate her teachings, that you allow this to continue. Friends, I believe that this is a place where we as individuals and we as a church need to ask ourselves some very difficult questions. I believe that despite our discipleship, 
despite our walk with Christ, despite our personal journeys of faithfulness that I've seen in so many of you that I've experienced in myself, despite perhaps that our latter works are exceeding our former works, despite these things, too often we tolerate in our churches agendas, ideologies, sinfulness, idolatry, things that are leading us and that are leading others away from Christ. We tolerate these things. Now, to be frank, I want to mention two specifically, two areas of our common life as a church. And now, let's be clear, other churches and other, other places of worship tolerate other idols, but I'm not interested in talking about their idols. That's too easy. That turns a sermon into a pep rally. I'm interested in talking about ours. What do we tolerate? And if I do this correctly, all of you will be very offended by the time we leave. (laughs) The first thing I would say that we are tolerating is this cultural ideal that we need to take care of ourselves first. That there's some sort of, that our ultimate end, our ultimate goal is self-fulfillment. That's the message we're we're getting too often, and I believe we're tolerating it. And so I've sat with too many people in my office discussing their marriages that are falling apart because they refuse to sacrifice and give up and do the hard things for each other. I've witnessed too often times people um, getting away from a solid ethic of loving life in all its forms and at all its stages because it's too hard or too difficult. Too often we want to hold up ourselves and our own needs and our own self-fulfillment and we're not willing to do the hard work of sacrifice and serving each other And so in our marriages, rather than giving up our needs for the sake of our spouse, we say, well, just everybody needs to go their own way. It's nobody's fault. Now, sometimes hard decisions have to be made, and sometimes there's no other option. And I think about loving and faithful people who have been through very painful divorces, and I know that that is a painful thing, and I hope you don't feel shame in this. And yet too often we as a church and a culture want to take the easy way out in our marriages and our understanding of life, whether it's life in its earliest stages or in its later or even right in the middle. We want to take the easy way out and we turn a blind eye to what God is calling us to do. And so I think in a church in many ways we've tolerated this cultural ideal that our own self-fulfillment is what is ultimate in our lives. And secondly, I believe that we've tolerated or even enabled this country's political division within the walls of our churches. Too often churches become identified with a major political party and it goes one way or the other. Let me be clear. Are we a church like that? Or can we be a church that offers a space where those who are wed to Christ or welcomed and transcend a political allegiance. 
There's a speaker at a conference down in Charleston just this past weekend. He said, uh, our current political landscape draws Christians into secular tribes and draws us further away from each other. This isn't to say that we should withdraw from politics. But can we be a church and can we be Christians who participate lovingly and wisely? Can we refuse to allow our political ideologies to turn our neighbors and even our brothers and sisters into caricatures of some bogeyman rather than people made in the image of God that we love and serve Jesus together with? I fear, friends, that our church, the church is being increasingly tempted to tolerate political tribalism where we equate allegiance to Jesus with allegiance to a political party. So, these are hard things. They convicted me when I was reading it. I was like, oh, come on. These are hard things. But the good news about Jesus is that there's always good news. There's always good news. What is the good news for the church in Thyatira? Well, let's summarize it and then we'll unpack it. The good news can be summarized roughly like this. Jesus gives in accordance with our faith, which is evidenced in our work. Okay, do you get that? Jesus gives in accordance with our faith, and that is shown, is evidenced in our work. Our faithfulness in Jesus is evidenced in the way we live our lives. Now, let's, let's look at this a little bit. Look at verses 23, um, the second part of 23. Um, Jesus says to the church there, he says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So Jesus is the one who searches our minds and he searches our hearts. He knows our motivations. He knows our faithfulness or lack thereof, and he gives to us accordingly. He searches Jezebel's heart and mind, right? And despite her claims to be a prophetess of God, her works are clear evidence that she is not. They evidence the fact that she is actually leading people away from God rather than towards Him. And she's turned over to a brutal judgment, a sickbed, and death. But what about the others? The faithful men and women of Thyatira. Well, let's read on, verses 24, second part of verse 24 and 25. To you I say, okay, well, let's start at the beginning. To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching of Jezebel, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, do not, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. What is the work that is evidence of the faithfulness of these men and women in Thyatira, the work that they are expected is to hold on, to hold fast. That's what Jesus expects. That is evidence of their faithfulness. There's actually another interesting reference here in Acts to Acts chapter 15. 
Remember what we said, they were, they were only required to abstain from food and from sexual immorality. And, and the letter actually is, is quoted like this. They, the apostles write to these churches in this area of Asia. They write, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. Do you recognize that? He says it right here in Revelation. He says, I lay on you no greater burden. You're not expected to obey the law. You're not expected to come under the, the Mosaic covenant. You're expected to love and be faithful to Jesus and to hold on tight. Now that will be evidenced in faithful works. But at the end of the day, all we have is Jesus, not what we do. And when we are holding on tight to him, the fruit of our faithfulness will be on display. And so the work that is evidenced of the faith of the Christians in Thyatira is they're holding on fast. They're holding on fast to what they have, which is Jesus. How have they grown? How does their latter work succeed their former? Well, as persecution has increased, as death has come to them at the hands of the Roman rulers, as they've been cast out from their, um, from their social circles, They've just held on tighter because they know that the only salvation they have is in the cross of Jesus. That there's nothing they can do except have faith in him. Now this is actually quite the contrast to our previous concerns we discussed earlier. Our, our easy way out culture or our political tribalism these are ways of trying to work our way to salvation. I'm going to try to be happy and be self-fulfilled in this life right here and right now. And so I'm going to take the easy way out of all my relationships, all these difficult circumstances. I'm going to avoid that so I can be happy. How's that working out for you guys? Or we see that, that we are threatened or concerned, and so we, we try to seize on to political power one way or the other, and we try to, try, to, try to earn it through that, through our salvation, through politics. And that's going to fail every single time. But we're invited to hold fast to Christ. Because in Him there is salvation, and in there there is hope for a true and better future. Look at the promise Jesus gives to those who hold fast. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Do you see that? Now, we don't know exactly what this means. But on some level, those who hold fast to Christ, those who overcome the trials and tribulations and persecutions of this world, will reign with him in his kingdom. That when we meet our death, we will find ourselves reigning in the presence of Christ. It says that God will give us his morning star. God will give us his son, Jesus himself. And in the world to come, in God's kingdom, there will be no sun or moon or stars, but the only light will be Christ. And there will be no more suffering, 
No more pain and no more tears for those who hold fast, but only life and life everlasting.